Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Today, we welcome Aaron Meyer. Aaron is the founder and president of Basil's Harvest, a nonprofit organization who's sharing the message that soil health impacts human health. She's doing this by bringing together people in agriculture, health, and food systems to grow regional systems that are good for people and the planet. She's also a clinical associate at the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Peoria, Illinois, where she enjoys training residents in the food is medicine program that she co-developed. This is such an important conversation, so let's jump right in. Welcome, everyone. I'm pleased to be joined by Aaron Meyer today of Basil's Harvest. Uh, got some amazing things going on uh, right here in uh, my home state of Illinois. Aaron, welcome. Thank you for having me, and it's just a pleasure to be here. So Aaron is uh, going to be out at our farm, but uh, she promises to to be out at the farm in the future. So we may have to record a follow up episode after that, and either get to, uh, either get some things that we're really doing right, or some things that uh, she thinks we need to be doing a little bit better. But uh, it's pretty interesting because um, she's done a lot of work at the nexus of soil health and human health, and I just love for you to share your story. You know, I, I, how did how did you get to where you are today? Oh. I love this question and I feel like I've been working on this for the last 30 to 35 years. So my background, I am a dietitian. I'm a chef. I went to culinary school and I have my master's in sustainable food systems. So I started my career as a diabetes educator and I, I was able to, you know, work within the hospital system and help people who had diabetes. And one of the things that I learned along the way is, that I wanted to do more for my patients. And while I could talk about food and diet and, and you know, and listen and, and help with behavior change, I wanted more information about where food was coming from and, and the best ways to prepare food and really to connect to our patients' cultural identities. And so I, I went to culinary school. Um, from there, um, I continued in that work for 10 years and I went, I had an opportunity to go home with my then five and three-year-old. Um, and we lived on 12 acres. Uh, we had a couple hoop houses, huge garden. We had a few animals. We were raising, um, a lot of the food that we were eating and I was home two weeks and I decided that you don't go from two weeks management, full-time management to a stay-at-home mom. So I started a food business. And that food business actually was called Basil's Harvest. Um, the girls and I started in our kitchen with herbal-infused vinegar. We were harvesting our own herbs and, and some of the other ingredients that we were putting in it. And we started in our kitchen, and then we went to the farmer's market with one little cedar table and, and umbrella. And then we grew into a business where we had an actual... Uh, building and we were making anywhere from 
I don't know, 15 to 30 products. We had a bake shop. Uh, we were making organic pasta. We were making hummus. But the key piece of this is that we were, we were building relationships with farmers in our region. We were contracting with these farmers and we based our recipes on our cultural identities. I'm Italian and my husband's in, is German. So we brought those recipes and culture forward. Um, we were growing that and we did that. I had that business for about 10 years. A tornado came through, destroyed the business. I will say that the one piece of that, that, that I didn't fully understand at that time was scale. And so I decided to put that business to bed, got my master's and I went into the nonprofit world and I was working with farmers, communities, and culinary professionals, bringing culinary professionals to the farm to connect them to where their ingredients were coming from and really to look at those three legs of sustainability, economic, environment, and social. But the one key factor that was missing for me is that we needed to have healthcare on the farm. We needed to have dietitians and nurses and doctors. We needed to have their hands in the soil and we needed to help support, train, and help them connect to a regional food shed and sustainability in this connection to soil and human health. So I started Basil's Harvest. So that's how we got started. That's an uh, interesting story. I mean, uh, we just really looking at where things take you, right? Um, mm -hmm. Not, I don't think any of us could map that out at the beginning. And no. that, that's interesting how you've moved from you know, not maybe from, but you, you're after working with chefs and farmers, now you're moving into the healthcare side in that connection. So there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, we only have an hour to work with or so. So we'll, we'll get to what you're saying. I think it's um, most of the people listening to the, to the podcast, uh, our majority farmers understand that, you know, food can be grown in different ways and can make, make a, uh, make a really good product out of it. If we do everything right and regeneratively uh, also can some shortcuts can be made and may not have the same nu nutrient density and those kind of things, but talk about, I, I, I kind of have a saying on, on the beef business, at least it takes three years from conception to, to processing, you know, to get beef and it can yeah. take three weeks at the processor to, you know, cut, hang, pack uh, the meat. And then it can take, three minutes in a person's kitchen to either make it wonderful or not so wonderful. Talk to us about that role that chefs play in, in keeping that nutrient density viable and, and healthy to the, to the uh, patron of a restaurant. Oh, that's a great question. Um, first, I think it goes back to what you were saying in terms of how we're raising our animals um what we're what we're feeding our animals what the business model is right and as that meat you know moves through the value chain and it gets to the restaurant or it gets to the customer's table um I, my husband was raised um on a farm in nebraska and they had a cattle cattle farm and they also did row crops and he, when we got married, 
he always said, you know, the only thing that you should have to do with beef is put some salt and pepper on it. And there's not much else you need to do with that. But in terms of, which I agree with, but in terms of, you know, I think as chefs and culinary professionals, respecting where our food is coming from and really the idea of making something taste delicious um, I'm a firm believer that the sim the simpler the process, the better tasting the food. So letting the food speak for itself um, is one of the things that that we talk a lot about when we're talking to farmers, when we're talking to customers, um, and then listening to not from a restaurant perspective. Um, I never owned a restaurant. Um, you know, I owned a food business. It was a kitchen. But listening to what customers were asking for, um, learning more about uh, what they enjoyed and taking that information um, and highlighting highlighting that process or those ingredients. I, I did want to tell a little story. When I was at um, my, the first nonprofit that I ran and we would have chefs come to the farm, we would do, it was very experiential. Um, we went through really food systems 101. So we were in the field from the beginning. We were pulling up, you know, the plants, the root system. We were looking at that. We were tasting foods in the field. But the other thing that we did, we had a, uh, a whole section on animal husbandry from animal welfare all the way through the process. And we, we actually had uh, meat tastings and we would we would pull in and we would do beef and we would do pork and we would pull in um, what we could buy at the grocery store. So we knew that how it was raised in that conventional, conventional, conventional way um, in the, in a confined operation. That was one way we had grass fed. Uh, we had grass fed grain finished and all we did was put, put a little salt on it and we grilled it and we went through how these animals were raised. And then we, we got the perspectives of the chefs and what they tasted and what they enjoyed. And one thing that we all know is that everybody has a different palate and a different preference, right? And so that's the other piece of this, I think that we need to take a look at. Um, but I will say that from animal husbandry and regenerative agriculture, having those animals in, in the field is a key component of creating a healthy planet and healthy people. So there's some interesting things there. I, I comes to mind is, you know, you mentioned the palate and the preference. Part of that, I think, is what we get used to. Um, you know, if, if you, um, for a bad example here, um, love to drink Pepsi, you know, and Pepsi is the only way and, and you got to have your Pepsi and you just, you know, Coke can't do that because it's, it's different. <laughs> I, I think that, uh, if you look at them, they both have high fructose corn syrup and phos acid in them. It's like, just quit drinking them. There's the answer. But, uh, you know, there's uh, uh, sometimes I think we get get trained into what we're used to. And is there almost a retraining that needs to happen in the culinary profession um, to what those different palates are? If you're used to drinking Gallo wine all the time and you bring in a Napa wine, uh, going from Moscato to a cab is... Uh, is a shock. And, you know, in the Midwest, that's, Ooh, I don't like that dry wine. Right. Um, you know, do you have that to deal with? And then also, is there a dealing with, um, 
and maybe I need to break it up into two questions, but you're dealing with a very commoditized product in the conventional agriculture world. And it's regular meat is pretty blah. I, because I'm just saying this from being in the meat business compared to ours. And you, you have kind of a, like a blank palette to work with in conventional and you need to, you know, marinate and, and, you know, re put reduction sauces and all this lather it up with onions and mushrooms and cheese and all this stuff, because what you're dealing with on the plate is very boring where something raised regeneratively, there's a lot of extra compounds that we know in it, a lot of extra flavor profiles. And I think you really need to treat that differently. And is there a retraining? So there's there like a repalletizing? Is there such a word? And is there a, a retraining of how to prep food that is more in touch with nature? Mm. That's a big question. So I'm going to go to the science to begin with. Um, are you familiar with the phrase, are you a super taster or are you a non-taster? Have you ever heard that before? I have not. Sure. Okay. No. Educate me here. So um, I'm going to preface it. It's been a while since I've taught this. When I taught at the culinary school, but we, we have within us, we're either super tasters or non-tasters or somewhere along the spectrum. And <clears throat> the super taster they have a tendency to not like really strong foods, like foods from the brassica family. So cauliflower, broccoli, cabbage, um, bold, dark coffees, bold red wines, or I'm, I'm sorry, let me take that back. Bold, dark coffees, um, bold red wines. They really, they don't like those. And, and there's, it's actually, um, you can do a litmus paper test and you put this on your tongue. And if you're a super taster, that litmus paper is very, very bitter. And so this is something that is genetic versus a non-taster. You love bold coffees. You love really bold red wines, um, those tannins. You love, you really enjoy that. And then you have, you know, what's on the spectrum, you know, in the middle all the way through. So I think that we should pay a little bit of attention to that. The other thing that I think that we need to pay attention to is that the food industry has figured out how to take sugar, fat, and salt and create a taste and a flavor profile that, that we become addicted to. And within that, we get accustomed, we really lose sight of what food tastes like, we're tasting that combination of salt, sugar, and fat. So that's another issue that we have. If you go into and use meat as your example that you brought up, um, you're right. We Our meat industry is to grow it fast, get it through. It has no taste, no color. It's blah, as you say, versus I think it's a combination of things and I am not a farmer, so please step in and let me know how you feel about this. But I think it's a, it's a combination of things as one, how we're raising that animal, what the variety or the breed is of that animal um, that also helps to accentuate the flavor profile. In my example to that, I'll use hogs. My two favorite hogs um, that we've butchered has been a red wattle 
and a um a black guinea hog and the black guinea hog I use to cure it's a pink meat and it's really really beautiful in curing uh, the red wattle is just one of the most delicious pieces of of pork that I've ever had in my life and so that that I think the breed also impacts that um and when you were talking about you know we've gotten accustomed to we don't know what food should taste like what we've got accustomed to is, is this industrial process of how food is produced and we get it on our table and we eat it. And so back to your original question, yes, it takes time to retain, retrain our taste buds. Um, I can use the example um, working in, in the hospital and in the clinical um, area that um, with some of the heart patients that we worked with going from a high salt, higher fat diet and having to make some of those changes, you know, it's going to take six months to make those changes and you're going to taste foods that you may not really enjoy. And so, you know, I'll use butternut squash. I didn't enjoy butternut squash when I first tasted it. You know, it, it took probably five to eight times of me trying to prepare butternut squash for me to, to actually enjoy it. But uh, going back to salt and fat and making those changes in your taste with your taste buds for you to actually, you know, it, your body is, is changing and, and you're making that adjustment to where you get to the point where it's, oh, this is what real food actually tastes like. So it's, it's interesting. Uh, and I think that's something you made a really great point there that we need to keep in mind as we're looking to make a diet change, right? Or a lifestyle change that mm -hmm. at first, it, it just like any habit, you know, they say it takes 28 days to, to become a routine. Uh, similar thing when you're trying to change your diet to maybe more fresh leafy vegetables, uh, same thing. Plus there's a huge difference in the leafy vegetables too, between, you know, homegrown and, and uh, what we get in the store just because of the complexity and, and uh, those things. But you agree. It's just one of those things. If it's something that you need, know you need to move to, don't just give up on it on the first try. Is that a... Absolutely do not give up on it on the first try. Behavior change takes time and it takes effort. And speaking from someone who has made behavior changes and has experienced failure in that, it's a growing... It takes time and effort and you and you grow into it. And um, I just want to to, if I can make it just a couple more points in our white paper, the regenerative agriculture and human health nexus, David Lazaks talks about there's, there's four pathways in terms of where we are in our diet today and how the, the options, the different options of, of moving forward, because the biggest issue that we have with our diet today is that it's ultra processed. And that ultra processing is high in calories, high in salt, high in fat, high in sugar. And that is leading to chronic disease, obesity, diabetes, heart disease. And it really starts with what we're choosing to eat. And one of, and one of the first steps is moving from the, this ultra processed foods, food to adding some whole food minimally processed into your diet, you know? So if you're drinking apple juice, 
can you cut your apple juice in half and can you add an apple into your diet? You know, so going from a processed food to if you're eating a hamburger from a fast food joint, you know, can you switch and actually buy some hamburger and prepare something for yourself so you have control of where it came from, where the beef came from, what you're putting into it, right? And then as you move through this, these different stages, you know, are you interested or is reducing chemicals in your diet important to you? So, you know, that's moving into that second phase. And then the third phase is we talk about soil health or the soil microbiome and the gut microbiome, really looking at these as fermented foods and the impact that that can have on our bodies. And then finally, this nutrient density piece, which is what we're talking about here today in terms of how our food is grown, how we're farming, and the impact that that farming is having on soil health, which Basil's Harvest believes is also impacting the nutrient density of produce, of protein. And so looking at it from those aspects also. So um, this is my summary, definitely not yours, but uh, you know, step one is, is stop feeding yourself crap, right? <laughs> and, and stop eating like crap, but respect yourself a little bit and, and then get to, to <laughs> things that are maybe a little more whole food and organic, right? Yep. And then get to things that are more homemade, uh, the yeah. fermented, you're trying to get your local biome in yeah. touch with your biome, right? And then yep. after that, look at the nutrient density from regenerative agriculture and those kind of things. So that's an, that's a, that's a path anyone can take and they can take their time to do that, but it's not the, Oh, you've got to be whole 30 or you got to be paleo or you have to be this or that, you know, cause that is person dependent. Um, you know, the, I agree with you. And by the way, I like your analogy. I, I actually like you a lot. Just oh, hearing no. that analogy. <laughs> Uh, it's uh it's amazing and honestly it's lifestyle choice it's not really food choice it's lifestyle choice it's um you know we don't budget enough time uh for food i think it's lifestyle i think it's economics um you know i think that we have lost sight of how to prepare food you know i look at um you know i grew up in it with parents that predominantly my mom cooked prepared everything from scratch. I mean, there was some box stuff, but over, you know, but she was, she cooked. Um, I cooked a lot, but you know, I, my family has enjoyed eating out and doing some different things, but I still, I cook a lot. My kids, and this is abnormal. I think my kids actually cook quite a bit. You know, we don't see a lot of that in their generation. Um, but not only with, people and losing sight of cooking, but look at what's happening in schools. Look at at what's happening in hospitals. It's pre-prepared, it's packaged, it's heat and serve. I mean, we've created, um, we've created a monster and it's impacting our health and our farmland. And we don't know we've created it though, right? We don't know we've created it. I don't think it was intentionally created that way. It's just, no, now, absolutely million, not. We have a compounded unintended consequences, right? So it's I agree time, with you. It's time to hit the reset button and just I agree wholeheartedly. Off the madness, you know. Yeah, yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. 
The Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. The ASN team is hands-on, digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture. Along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome, we provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey. So stop farming the same way and contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. How, do, how does it happen? Aaron, how, how, are, how are you and me going to make this happen? And, and mm. dive in a little more on what you're doing and, and some of the successes that you have going on today. Oh, um, thanks for asking that question. So we started uh, the nonprofit Basil's Harvest uh, with a farm to institution project. Um, and it was to figure out we needed... A farmer, we needed a processing plant, we needed a hospital, and we and we also needed somebody to, to test soil for us and to test the nutrient density of the small grains. And so we developed a, a small project. It took a couple of years where um, we were going to put oats into the hospital so they could make oatmeal and they could make granola from oats that were grown in the Midwest. Um, and so this project, we've developed a proof of concept where we figured out, you know, the farmers growing the oats, getting those oats into the mill. The mill, we had to build out the infrastructure with the equipment, but getting that, getting the, the oats flaked and getting those oats into the hospital so they could be prepared. Um, we figured out how to do all of that, uh, which included, it sounds simple, but just it happened during COVID. The hospital had had to do recipe testing to figure out how to use these oats. So it was really going back to the basics of these are the basic questions we need to ask to get oats onto the tray. The other thing that we had to deal with was the cost of those oats. And um, they're more expensive than what your what food service pays for oats or for almost anything that you're trying to bring in local. And so we subsidized it for a year with the hospital um, committing to continuing to pay full price once the year was up. Um, we've, we did that. We learned a lot. Um, we're moving forward. Uh, we're waiting to hear. We have a project with um, the National Guard in Minnesota, Illinois, Iowa, and Wisconsin, along with food hubs um, and universities and processors figuring out the logistics of how we can help them get these regionally grown foods into the military. Um, what I've learned is that it's complex and it's hard, uh, but there's a lot, a lot of people working on this right now. Um, and probably one of the biggest things is building relationship and having open and honest conversations and having access to the records of what's being purchased and what some of the roadblocks are along the way so that we can try to figure out these gaps and, and make a plan to move forward. So the oats story is pretty amazing. Um, yeah, on the back promotes a um, lot of plant growth regulators are applied to oats so they don't fall down. Uh, glyphosate is applied as a desiccant in order to be able to hurry up harvest timing so they don't fall down or, or rot in the field. Uh, so, and uh, they're no longer typically steel cut. Uh, they are highly processed and instant, right? So you had 
um, just that one change. Okay, look, you you got, um, I'm sure you got the plant growth regulators out of there, which have secondary human effects. You got the glyphosate uh, out of there, which, uh, you know, any oatmeal that's been tested by some some person that wears a Quaker hat has <laughs> come to light that there's lots of glyphosate in those oats because that's a common practice uh, outside in Iowa where, where they come from. And then also, uh, um, you know, that whole milling process to do an old skill milling, I'm assuming that's what you did. And then having to teach the staff that you have to cook these for a long period of time instead of just put it in hot water and done. Uh, that's an amazing process that you went through there. You know what? I'm going to have to, rec I'm going to have to get a recording of this, pro this podcast because you said it perfectly. Um, yeah, it was a huge process. Um, and first these oats were um, certified organic oats. So it, we got rid of all of that. Um, and I will say, I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that we have failures, the oat crop failed, the first oat crop failed. And, um, and what I mean by fail, they had oats and they were going to be, they were able to use them for seed for next year, uh, but they didn't meet the food quality standards for the mill. So we couldn't use them in terms of the process of processing the oats. They purchased an oat flaker. So there is heat that goes into it. And then they're, they're pushed through a roller and they're flaked. So they're thick oats. So the cooking time is a lot different. The hospital, the way that they would prepare the oats that they were originally using is they would put them in a pan, they would put hot water in them and they would put them in the warmer. And because they were ultra processed, they cooked. Well, we had to develop um, a cooking process for these oats. So going into the hospital, that's time and money. And so we had to figure that out. The other thing that we had to figure out is that the food service director wanted to be able to use 100% of the oats that were cooked. So we had to develop recipes for cooked oatmeal so that we didn't throw the oats away. And so that process in itself um, was also extensive. The last thing that I'll point out is that because that oat crop failed for our use, one of the key things about building and creating regional food sheds is that farmers and processors, we all need relationships with people within our, our system, like within the Midwest or across the country. Um, I call them nodes. We have to have regional nodes across the country because if we have a failure like this, we have to be able to reach out to another farmer who has the product to bring it in. So we were able to stay in the Midwest. We stayed in, we purchased the oats from Minnesota, uh, brought them into the mill where they were processed and gone through the flaker at the mill. And so that's how we made it work in this process. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, and your oat harvest here wasn't a failure. You were just uh, selecting for oats that were adapted to our environment. There you go, thank you, I appreciate next that. Year, yes. you, you had oats that were adapted to our environment. So uh, well, that's great. And uh, any stories of wellness or studies um, that came out of there? I mean, you're you're focused on the cost side and just getting it to the patients. Um, any any results or or things feedback from uh, patients, hospital yeah. workers, those people that eat the cafeteria there? 
You know, um, not in terms of data or studies on the nutrient density, um, no. But what I will say is what we were, this was all about providing a product that from an environmental perspective um, was going to have key positive outcomes for the environment and it was going to taste delicious. And so that's where we started. Um, we also, uh, we did test small grains. Uh, they weren't oats. It, they were wheat and rye for the nutrient density. And we have that data. Um, we haven't had a chance to dig into the data yet, but that is something that um, we're evaluating right now. And we're also building out our next um, continuation of the soil and nutrient density research. Um, one thing that I will say that came from this, and it's a strong passion of mine, going back to that our original um, discussion around healthcare professionals, is that we believe that they're a key piece to not only human, you know, advancing human health and, and being um, in what they do best, but also thinking about resilient communities regenerative, um, resilient agriculture, and, and being able to understand and connect the dots and start to talk about food a little differently with their patients and also building their team. So if a physician is a first point of contact and then the patient moves over and meets with a dietitian, that we're, build, we're helping to build relationships, but also around these key talking points around food systems. And we created um, a two-week course that we taught at a um, medical school this year where it was a food systems course. It was around highlighting the microbiome, but introducing regenerative agriculture. Uh, we went through agriculture processing and preparing food from A to Z. And the last day we brought the medical students onto, um, it was a garden, a large garden that was connect that right next door was a soybean field. And so taking the nuggets of this class of the history of agriculture, of what a value chain is, of what animal husbandry is and the different ways that we can raise animals to what phytonutrients are and antioxidants are and actually being in the garden, tasting, smelling, but also comparing to that soybean field that was a conventional field and watching the light bulbs go off to be able to see it visually and to talk through it. They could connect to what they were taught. Then we went into the ki kitchen and we prepared a meal together and we were able to walk through everything um, in the kitchen and sitting around the table talking about it. That's where I believe a key key piece of change can happen is that we need to be harnessing this information and getting it into dietetics programs and medical schools and bringing the farmers and the processors and the researchers into the mix and being part of this discussion with culinary and healthcare professionals. So the immersion and um, yeah. bringing everybody together uh, is where we can get the uh, change to stick essentially is is seeing what's going on there because um we've become um 
we become extraordinarily uh, silo oriented in our in our food uh, supply chain. Uh, you know, it's just just carbs, proteins, and and fats, and we'll build it what we need from there. Don't bother us with the details, right? So, right. <laughs> um, right. I got to ask you though, uh, the hospital, uh, I believe OSF, are they still uh, still buying your oats, or yes, do we need to have a talk with some people there? No, no, they're still supporting it. They're still purchasing Why? the oats. Why? Um, it's more expensive. It's harder to do. Why? It's the right thing to do. It's the right thing Will to do. Actually, on a couple be motivated aspects. by that. <laughs> what? Can hospitals actually be motivated by doing the right thing? Um, I yeah. hope so. You know, um, I'd like to see more of it. The one thing that I'll say, you know, from first off one of the reasons why this this farm to institution is really complex is that the um, food service marketing market contracts are very stringent and and to be able to have any wiggle room to bring in ingredients outside of the contracts very hard there you go you need to share that with us i'm familiar with it because we've attempted to sell direct to uh, yeah. restaurants and such uh, share with what these food service contracts are and the percentage of commitment they have sure. to have oh, i'd be happy to so most probably 99.9 percent .9 of institutions schools hospitals prisons the national guard anything that big companies that that have food service they contract with companies like Cisco, um, US, Cisco US Food, Sodexo. And within those contracts, you within that contract, it varies from institution to institution. But the contract that we worked with, the, the hospital has to buy 90% of their food from the contractor. So they have 10% that they can purchase outside of that contract. But that being said, it's already spoken for. So- Hear about that, what, that other 10%? 10% can be anything. The hospital that we worked with, it wasn't just the food company. It was a large company. It was an umbrella company that, the, that um, their food service provider was within. So 90% of the food, that was part of the contract, but that 10% included food it included um toiletries it included forks napkins salt pepper pork, well it included toilet paper it included surgical supplies it included you know so within that it's it's more than just the food itself um and so that also made it difficult so we found wiggle room we found a place that we could insert um oats osf was uh, great to work with, you know, and they're, they have a sustainability program. That's the other thing when you're looking into this as a farmer, um, you know, the, asking what, if they have a sustainability program, what their sustainability program looks like to get the more information that you can get, what projects that they have going on, the more you can learn about the institution, and if the institution is interested in local food, you know, with OSF, we were the first, the, the first project that brought local food in, you know, they knew it was time to have the discussion. 
And like I said, it took three years and that included COVID, but it took three years to get it across the finish line. Yeah. And there, so there's lots of barriers and uh, the food, yeah. food company uh, wants all the food coming through them, which you can't blame them for that, but they all participate at the same way to make it somewhat of an oligopoly because you only have, uh, um, you know, two or three food service providers within any one geography that can, can take care of these things. So, uh, <laughs> that is true. I will say that, that they are hearing the loud voices that are knocking on their door or banging on their door saying, you know, we need to build result. We need to bring local food into the system. We need to support the local economy and our local farmers um, our local processors, you know, how do we do that? And how do we work together? That being said, yes, it's very difficult and, and it's not impossible. Yeah. Good point. And it's, it's important to also note, it's really easy for the institution to have one person to work with. You have one ordering system, one check-in system, one delivery day, everything standardized for them on their end. So there, there's value there. The question would be, how does the how do we get the local system uh, to be more represented by these food service distributors? Mm, that's a good question. Or is there um, contracts on the backside between, you know, large produce, you know, JBS or, or those companies uh, saying that you have to buy our stuff 90% of the time. I, I don't know. I, uh, so I've, I am in communication with a mid-sized distribution company out of Chicago and they're mid-size. And what I value about the size of this company is that one, you can you can talk to a person um, and they have started to develop a, a local foods program and sustainability program. And so having some having this director of local foods and sustainability, she has access to these institutions that are interested in local product. And then she's building relationships with farmers. It's another step within the value chain. So there's a cost there, um, but having and building on some of those relationships from my perspective is very, it's, it's advantageous and um, it's one way to help get these products into institutions. Um, there's another, there's a program called the Good Food Purchasing Program started in California. Um, it's in, they've brought that program to Chicago and it's a program where uh, they're doing some proof of concepts right now. Um, and it's really working to build the infrastructure and to understand the pricing, the data, um, understanding what's being purchased from the hospital. So understanding the records. And so that's happening in different areas. Um, the work that we hope to be doing with the National Guard and this project hasn't started yet. We're waiting to hear back from, um, we've applied for a regional food system planning grant. You know, the idea of our goal is to do with the National Guard feasibility and market analysis of what they have in place in their kitchens, what their contracts look like to gain an understanding of what's what the interest is, what the possibility is. And then also we have a team on the ag side 
that's going to be doing very similar things, a feasibility, you know, assessing the interest and what it would take to get this this food into these different um, guard units. Um, this is a planning grant, so it's boots on the ground. Let's understand what's happening and what what our roadblocks are and, and what some of the solutions are. So the end goal for us is to create um, an implementation or a couple proof of concepts um, with National Guard. You know, we're also, and we're continually having conversations with others about the same type of programming. So that's what we're working to do is really dig in and with our teams to understand and see what the opportunities are and to take it step by step. So talk to us fast forward now to the future. We have a complete understanding of the distribution model and how to effectively plug into that and be a part of that and not, not be excluded from it. Yeah. Uh, you take your knowledge as a farmer, a dietitian, a chef, and an educator, all those things together. And uh, you paint the picture for me right now, uh, what success is going to look like in 10 years for you. Mm. Well, in 10 years, we have farmers have a pathway into um, institutions, into the wholesale market, um, that regenerative agriculture, um, resilient agriculture is a commonality across the country, that we're growing more food for people to eat, that the food that we're growing for, for people and the food that we're growing for our animals um, is higher nutrition quality. And so that impact um, on feeding animals and caring for animals is so much stronger than where we are today. And in a nutshell, for me, what, what our long-term goals are is that we are helping to support and grow regional communities to make them more resilient. And so that we have the economics from agriculture supporting and bringing dollars into the communities. Environment is environmental practices are improving. So our environment is improving um, and the health of our communities because we have relationships and we've helped to train and teach the healthcare industry that these foods are front and center and we're working with them on how to create behavior change and we're getting more of these foods onto people's plates. So disease is reduced, soil health is better, and we have a pathway into these institutions to serve the people within the institutions. So I think it's really interesting how you're looking at the at the at the pathway, right? Um, you're you're fully aware of the beneficial on the human health side and fully aware of the benefit on the ecosystem services and soil health right. side. You're trying to say this is what needs done in order to get this connected now everybody's eating today right yep. Yep. Uh, farmers are growing the food today right that that we're eating but you're looking at shifting that to a more local instead now the farmers in salinas are really mad at you right now and the ones at yuma you know because they're like hey you're, you're taking away our lettuce business here uh, but well, let me, can i interject talk, really? talk about that shift right that the food is there um but anyway, sorry to interrupt, but that's what no, I- No, no, no. I, I think I interrupted you. And I, this was a point that I made um, during a talk that I gave in December, is that we are importing more produce 
than what we're purchasing in our state and what's being grown in our state. Yeah, that's a, that, that's a fact. So are we going to take away all the, you know, lose jobs in California for the less? No, we're that's I don't see that happening. Uh, but I do see an opportunity where with what's happening within um, our environment and what we're seeing with weather changes. Um, some people get upset when I say climate change, but the weather is changing. Um, and we know that, you know, the term agroforestry, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with that, really regenerative agriculture with the cover crops and the rotations. I mean, there's not there's a reason for that. It reduces chemicals, chemical inputs, but it also is bringing more diversity, animal diversity, plant diversity, which is also going to help improve, I believe, and I'm not a meteorologist, but I believe some of our weather con conditions. And we have to do what we have to do in our areas to make our areas healthy and lively. I want my grandkids and my grandkids' grandkids to have a place that's a place that they can raise their kids. And we have, there's a problem right now, you know? And so if we can build rural economies, they're disintegrated. You, I grew up in a rural economy. I grew up in a small town that our small town is dead. You know, there's a McDonald's and a Subway. And we lo we've lost three family restaurants in the last five years. You know, the economy is not good. And if there's a way to help shift and build a rural economy, I believe in that wholeheartedly. Very, very true. Um, it's, um, yeah, I did. I, I I lost my train of thought on that when when you're talking, you know, pretty passionately about what's happening there in our small towns, and and it's uh, it's sad how much we've exported, how much talent we've exported, and families we've exported from towns that grew up in because there's just no opportunity. So, you know, this is a way to have that opportunity again, and and uh, get back to the way you know food was done not that long ago, you know, eighty years ago or so. Mm -hmm. Talk to us, uh, final thing here while we're while we're wrapping up. And um, you created a soil fact sheet that helps people understand this uh, connection between uh, the soil to human health. And we're going to have that along with your white paper links. Uh, Kim's going to make her magic happen and have that here in the show notes. Uh, talk to us about that soil fact sheet and how it's a, maybe a good resource for everybody to know and understand. You know, the, thank you for that. Um, you know, the soil fact sheet are um, are scientist uh, that I work with, he, we've worked together for the last five years. He he designed the soil research um, that we did and that we are continuing to build on. And he wrote a technical article and, and the focus is on the soil organic matter. And these are organic fields. And they looked at um, a 25-year organic field, a 15-year, a five-year and a T1, so a transition field. And he was mapping um, the organic matter and, and also um, the rotation. And, and it's really focused on growing the fertility and looking at a cross section of these fields and how and where they are within their practices. And um, 
And so what we what we're trying to do, and this is focused for farmers, um, we have another uh, fact sheet that we're creating that we're taking this, trying to create common talking points of why soil health is important. And with our work in farm to institution, starting to bring some of that into into the institution and the people that we're working with. So what are, you know, what are these gold nuggets and how can they be talking points for the institutions when they're trying to sell this in terms of, you know, why should we, why should we support a farmer who is growing local beef? Why should we support that? Well, this is why we can support that environmentally and economically, and then socially, the impact of what you're eating is better for us. So that's going to be coming uh, down the pipe. And so um, uh, thank you for sharing that with your readers. Um, I appreciate that. What other sh things should we have covered today, Aaron, that I, that I missed the opportunity to bring up? You know, I, uh, I, I think this was a great conversation. I just maybe just want to kind of pull it full circle that, you know, Basil's Harvest helps share the message that soil health impacts human health by bringing people together in agriculture, health, and food systems to grow regional communities that's good for both people and the planet. And that's one of our key, key gifts that we have is that we're able to, to bridge these silos between agriculture, health, and food systems. And that's what we wanna to continue to do. And so being able to have these conversations um, with, with different folks along different parts of the value chain is just wonderful. And we're very appreciative of that. Well, thank you for all your efforts and what you're doing to really make a regenerative food uh, an option for more and more people. And uh, it's one thing we have to know how to grow it. Uh, we have to know how to raise it, but we also have to know how to get it and sell it, it to the consumer. Market. And uh, whether that's uh, an individual or an institution, uh, people have to eat. And sometimes um, when you're in a hospital bed, you, you can't run out to get food you want. So it's uh, a captive market there or, or when you're at, uh, you know, your, your two weeks of, of training with national guard, you're, you're kind of, you get what you're served. So I, right. I think those are interesting opportunities right. where you're, you're providing food and it, where a person really doesn't have a choice. So, uh, yeah, congratulations on, on what you're doing there and keep up the great work and, and, uh, look forward to visiting with you at the farm sometime and, and, uh, hope that, uh, in 10 years, we all are eating regenerative food, uh, sourced locally. I think that's a great vision. Thank you. And thank you so much for bringing us on to, to share our story. I appreciate it. Very good, Aaron. Take care and, and have a great harvest. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to this conversation today. As you know, we think exploring soil health is of critical importance as it sheds light not only on its own vitality, but also on how it influences ecosystems, food systems, and human well-being. We think this conversation nails all of that. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.